maps can blend art, science, and history into something wholly unique. They both define our world and imbue it with magic. And perhaps best of all, they bring people together. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Pung Shepard. Her latest novel, The Cartographers, is out now from William Morrow. Pug and I discuss the interconnection of plot and character, throwing out half of a first draft, and of course, so many fascinating facts about maps. What is the purpose of a book about maps? Let's dive into the interview and find out. Welcome to the Fantasy End, Pung. I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast. Hi, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, and so one of the ways I kind of like to start out most of these interviews is just asking, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? Mm, I actually can. It was um, it was a very specific book. I was like nine years old, I think. And I was in the airport in Puerto Rico about to catch a flight on a family vacation. And my mom was like, you can, you know, just pick any book in this bookstore that you... Um, you know, that you want, but because it was a bookstore in the Puerto Rican airport, most of them were in Spanish. And so I was looking through and trying to find, you know, something in English that I could read more easily. And there was just this one tiny book shoved in the back. I don't even know if it was actually for sale. It had no sticker, nothing like that. Um, (laughs) It's from maybe like the 1970s. It's called The Chronicles of Elswin by Michael Kurland. Okay. And, uh, I think it's a YA book or a book for kids. And, but it was the only one in English guy could find. So I grabbed it and I ran to the front because the flight's about to take, you know, they're like, we're boarding, hurry up. Uh, and I read that whole book on the short flight that we had. And by the time I had finished it, I thought, yep, this is it. This is what I want to do. I want to write, I want to write stories just like this. Um, it was about like time travel and alternate universes. And, uh, it was the first, one of the first books I'd ever read in the genre. And it was just so magical. Yeah, very cool. That's amazing to have that kind of feeling when you're that young, too. I feel like a lot of people don't know maybe until they're a little older that they want to maybe try their hand at this writing thing. Yeah. Oh, man, I think you did, I guess maybe after that, you wrote a lot like through school and everything all up until college and then put writing on hold for a little while. So I am curious. I know a lot of people are probably in a similar boat where they're kind of nervous to take that first leap and start their dream. So how how were you able to do that? How were you able to make that leap? Uh, well, I wish I had better advice because I also (laughs) at that point could not make that leap myself. I said all through middle school and then high school that as soon as I, you know, got out of school like this, where you don't get to pick your subjects, as soon as I was able to pick Mm -hmm. my major, pick my subject, I was going to choose creative writing and I was going to be a writer. And then I got to university and I promptly did absolutely not do that because I was intimidated and I was afraid to fail. And it just seemed so much scarier when it was finally possibility. So uh, I don't know. It just took me some time to grow up. I think I did not major in creative writing. And then uh, I worked for a couple of years in a corporate job in the US and then abroad in the UK. And it wasn't until I think my mid or late 20s that I realized that I was doing okay. The job was interesting, but I wasn't happy. You know, it wasn't sure. It wasn't everything that I wanted to be doing. And I remembered how happy writing had made me and was finally, you know, old enough and mature enough and brave enough at that stage to, uh, really, really give it a good try. 
Yeah, no, that's great. And I think that good try of yours involved completing an official MFA. So what was that like? (laughs) That was amazing. I think it was integral to me being able to become a writer and finish my first book, The Book of M, uh, the one that that was my debut novel. Because at that point in my life, I had spent so long working not as a writer that not a lot of people in my life thought of me as a writer. They thought of me as, you know, this corporate person or I had an office job. And so it was really scary to try to tell people that I was going to be a writer. It didn't feel like I had the right or that I had permission and I needed some way to kind of get that legitimacy. And so the MFA gave me that because you have to write in that program. You are responsible for turning in pieces to workshop and you have to, you know, produce these pages or you're not going to pass and you're not going to get your degree. And so it was the first time that I, it both gave me permission to write that much. And it also made me feel like, yes, I, I'm doing a serious thing. I'm getting a whole degree in this. And so you know, I really have to take advantage of it and learn as much as I can and and really do my best. So I think for me, uh, and I'd recommend this to anyone if you're curious about it, there are a lot of MFA programs that do have funding and scholarships, which I think is also really important because it is an art degree. And so I don't know if I would recommend to anyone to get an MFA if you have to pay for the tuition unless you are, you know, that's within your budget and then that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of programs that have funding and scholarships and I just think they're invaluable. No, that's amazing because I know that's probably put off for many people, especially if you're going into the MFA thinking you're immediately going to make a full-time living right after you graduate from the program just from your writing. Um, I'm sure some people do, but... (laughs) Well, and I had this, uh, this professor there at the MFA program. His name was Darren Strauss. And I remember the first day of our first workshop, first semester, he said to us, and we're all, you know, everybody's in there really excited, ready to write the next great American novel, you know? And he said, I just want to say to all of you that you know, you're all really talented. I can't wait to read your work. You know, that's why you're all here. But please don't think that the thing that you're going to write here in my workshop, your first semester of your program is going to be the book that you publish because it's probably not. It's going to be whatever you write as soon as you finish the MFA. It's the next thing that you start after you graduate because you spend the whole program learning this kind of stuff. And then it's the lessons that you gain during the program it's the book that you start after the program. And I could tell that about half of us, probably myself included, was like, no, it's going to be the thing that I write. And it was not. I started the book of M <laughs> like one month after I graduated. And it was the first book that I published. He was totally right. I mean, if you don't mind me asking, what were you working on when you went into the MFA? I was working on... So I was playing with stuff that had to do with people losing their shadows. And so it was clearly something related to the book of it was just the earliest incarnation book of them but it wasn't it definitely wasn't the book of them because it didn't have any of the same characters and i didn't have any of the magic worked out or any of the story it was just me trying to figure out what to do with this concept that i was clearly fascinated with but um (laughs) yeah but but very different Sure. And I mean, I love that too, because that's a perfect example. I think a lot of people think that maybe if they don't have a great idea of the writing process, that an idea is basically the same thing as a story. And it's not. There's a lot, a lot of work that goes to get from the idea to the story stage. And so it's cool that you had that one kind of seed that carried through both. Yeah. um, And it's, yeah, that is so true what you say that you 
come up with this really cool premise and you think that is all you need. And I did spend the first year of my MFA thinking that was all I need. Uh, and I just kept trying and trying to make it work and it just wasn't working. And uh, it wasn't until I got the characters and I got the story that it really became the book that is the book of M. And so what, uh, other than, I guess, dedicating the actual time, taking it seriously and learning general craft, are there any main takeaways you had from your MFA? Anything like, okay, this is the most valuable advice I received? Hmm. Let's see. Well, Darren's advice was really good. Uh, it was also, <laughs> very, it was also very true. <laughs> Let me think. Um, well, one thing that I thought was very valuable was I just learned about the publishing process because I didn't really know how it worked. I don't even know mm -hmm. if I knew that you needed a literary agent if you want to be published traditionally before I got into the program. I just, I had no idea how books were, were really made. I just knew that yeah. I wanted to write one. So I think there's a lot of practical stuff you can learn too. And then a lot of, uh, it's really just the connections, you know, you end up meeting these professors who, if you hit it off with them, they'll, you know, keep reading your work a little bit, or they might give you a blurb or, you know, be there to offer advice when you just have, right. you know, no idea what's going on with your, with your draft. And you just, you know, you need somebody who's been there and done that to talk to. And that's really nice. Yeah, that's great. That sounds similar to a lot of industries, I feel like. <laughs> it's yeah. good to hear it works the same all around, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I did just see fairly recently, I don't know if it's recently for you in your time, but uh, you finished recording a series of episodes with the Writing Excuses podcast. Um, I think that's probably my favorite craft podcast. Um, so that's super so cool. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was that like? Uh, super scary and yeah. so much fun. <laughs> yeah, because I had been, uh, I've been listening to writing excuses for a long time because I know a lot of the hosts and I, you know, mm -hmm. know of a lot of their guests and it was really, especially during the pandemic, it was kind of like sitting around, you know, hanging out with friends that you haven't seen for a while because they, they're so familiar after so many seasons. And so when they asked me if I wanted to be a guest for that next season, it was the most exciting thing, but also just really <laughs> scary. And, um, but they, they're just so much fun. And we spent, so the way that they tend to do it is you record all your episodes in one day. So you just go for like this five hour stretch and you're hanging wow. out and you have lunch <laughs> together on zoom in the middle. And it's just, it's really, really fun. They're also brilliant too, that, it's just, uh, it was a really great experience. Yeah, awesome. And are those, I know they record like well in advance. So is that next season that's coming out or is that this season that's coming out for people to listen to? I think the first episode of my season just came out yesterday. And well, let's say, so February 28th, uh, okay, because I don't gotcha. know when this is airing. So I think <laughs> the, the first episode is probably already out by the time that this airs. Perfect. Yeah, and realistically, there's probably a couple more episodes out as well. I will get this episode out as quickly as I can. Uh, <laughs> now that I have a, a kid, my free time is uh, very low. <laughs> oh, gosh, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. Um, and so I'm also curious, while we're still on the subject of writing craft, uh, where do you in general feel that your writing craft strengths are? And maybe do you have any words of wisdom for others uh, relating to that area? Hmm, that's a good question. I think that I, so one of my favorite things to work on, which um, is related to our writing excuses conversation, I really, really like structure. Mm -hmm. I love playing with it. I love coming up with the different ways to frame or build the story. It's one of my favorite things. Um, we have, my editor and I are joking about this because the Book of M has four perspectives and spoiler alert, the cartographers has something like eight or nine points of view in it. <laughs> so clearly this is one of my things. I just, there's a dual timeline in the cartographers and there's something like eight or nine different perspectives. So 
I'm uh, I clearly I'm just a sucker for structure. Yes. And those perspectives are structured in an interesting way as well. So <laughs> definitely, yeah, definitely a structury book. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good point. Yeah. Um, any any advice for people on how to structure their books effectively or creatively, yeah. maybe? Yeah, I think that the way the best way to choose the kind of structure that you that will work the best for your book is to figure out the thing that is most important to you about the story. So if it's, you know, character, you're going to want to choose a kind of structure that emphasizes that whether it's uh, dual perspectives, so you can have you can see a character from two different points of view or a dual timeline. So you can see a character in the past and then see how they've changed the to the present or um you know, if your book is built around a twist, there are, there's a different structures that'll help you emphasize that more than maybe a more traditional structure. So it's really, it's just about figuring out the most important thing to you about your story and then choosing a structure that will make that the focal point of what you're working on. That's, that's great advice. And I think you're kind of hinting at multiple aspects of your structure with dual timelines, <laughs> dual characters, yeah. all of that. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, okay, we started talking about uh, the cartographers. So let's dive in. Do you have a pitch for us about the cartographers? Sure. Uh, this, the cartographers is, um, I would describe it as a novel about map making and family secrets. And it follows, uh, it follows a young woman named Nell Young, who is a budding scholar and she discovers after the death of her uh, legend, he's a legend in the field, her father, the, the famous Dr. Young, she discovers after his death that a seemingly worthless little map that he had hidden in his belongings is actually incredibly valuable and incredibly dangerous because it has a secret hidden on it. And so she sets off to figure out what uh, both that map and her father have been hiding for decades. Great pitch. Love it. And I, I will say, so I started reading The Cartographers um, and my wife was like, oh, what are you reading? And I was kind of giving her like a vague intro to it and everything. And she's like, that sounds amazing. I want to start reading it with you. <laughs> and that that has never happened before. So that oh, really? is a huge honor. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope she really enjoys it. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Um, but yeah, so I know uh, I, I'm always curious also, uh, since we kind of mentioned ideas earlier, how did the initial seed for The Cartographers originate for you? And uh, I'm sure maybe we can get into it. It went through several changes along the way. Oh, it really did. Um, <laughs> yes. So the initial seed for the cartographers came about probably something like five, no, more than that, seven or eight years ago, maybe when I was, I was just in a conversation uh, with a couple of other writers. And one of them mentioned reading about this cool concept that they have or that they used to use and maybe sometimes still do use with dictionaries where dictionary makers will insert a word that isn't real somewhere in the dictionary and then make up a definition for it. They're called Mount Weasels usually because I think that's one of the words that they've inserted. And (laughs) I just thought that was so fascinating that somewhere in the dictionary that you're looking at, any dictionary that you have, there's probably a word that isn't real and it's only there to catch other people out. Because if your word appears in someone else's dictionary, it's obvious that you've stolen all of those words rather than, you know, built your own list. And it turns out that the same thing is true with maps, that a lot of maps have what are called phantom settlements on them, which are the same kind of copyright traps. Map makers used to insert false roads or false towns or false mountains onto maps in really out of the way areas that you hopefully won't notice so that if other map makers copied their map they could prove 
that that the data had been stolen. And to me, I mean, to me, maps are just so fascinating to begin with. They're just, you know, I don't think I could ever, even if it's the most familiar map, I still am going to stop and look at it for at least five minutes because they're just so beautiful. They're so interesting. And I think we are all always hoping, even if it's really familiar, that we're going to find something new on the map when we look at it that time. Like this time we'll be different. We'll see something new or we'll find a we'll find something else to explore or, or we'll see a secret. And it turns out actually there are secrets on these maps that we probably have not noticed. And so that I, I just really wanted to write a mystery about that feeling. That's great. And that the way you're describing maps there kind of sounds like the way that people would describe like a really well-loved book that they want to revisit or something, right? Always oh, get something yeah. a little bit different each time out of it. Mm -hmm. um, very appropriate for uh, a writer talking on a book-oriented podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but no, I, I love that. And I, of course, I immediately went and looked up Phantom Settlements when I was reading about it too. And I was like, oh, wow, like this is not just like a fantasy thing. This is, no, this is a real so, thing that happened in the real world and maybe still happens. So that's very cool. Yeah, it's just fascinating. I love it. Yeah. And uh, let's see. So, I mean, we kind of already touched on this, but I am curious just with, I'm sure you did some digging into maps and everything uh, and you just have an interest in maps. So any cool map facts or anything you learned while coming up with this book that you can share with us? Other than obviously that one main doozy that is awesome. Yeah, uh, there are so many cool stories. So there's an, there's another type of map that's in the book that's related to the central mystery. And they're called, uh, these maps are called Sandborn maps. And they used to produce them. Uh, I think they produced them all the way up until the 1970s. But they were really big in the early 1900s, 1920s, 1930s. And they were essentially fire insurance documents, which, um, because back then a lot of things used to be built out of wood and then there were some things built out of brick or cinder block, but the sandboard company would produce these incredibly detailed maps of cities, uh, down to the street level and the building level because insurance companies needed to know what a building was made of in order to insure it at the right level, you know, a, a building huh. made of wood would obviously cost a lot more. And so these, Sandborn maps were really useful at the time for that, but it turns out that they're because they were produced because they're so detailed and they also produce them so often because construction was constantly happening, especially in places like New York City, they become this really valuable kind of anthropological or sociological record because you can trace changes in a city down to the very building or the, you know, the block that you're interested in. And you can just watch things shift over, you know, years or decades um, like that. So though I found those maps really, really interesting and I could lose hours uh, <laughs> looking through them and just, you know, picking the same street and then flipping through all the years is really cool. Um, and there's also, there's tons of funny stories too, like this. Uh, so in the 1990s and the early 2000s when phantom settlements were still a thing that was very common on paper maps, but also Google maps and other electronic maps were becoming more and more popular. There were a couple of kind of funny crossover anomalies where an electronic mapping company like Google maps would pick up a phantom settlement, but the algorithm doesn't realize that it's a phantom settlement. And so there's a case in the UK of a phantom settlement called Argleton. And there were, there was another one here in the U.S. where Google Maps 
thought that the phantom settlement was real. And so it started relabeling all of the businesses or homes in that area to change the town name so that the oh, businesses no. were located in Argleton instead of where they actually were located. And it just caused, I mean, so much confusion. Driving directions just exploded, obviously. And business owners had no idea why all of a sudden they were not listed in the same town that they were actually in. And uh, it just caused, I mean, it was total chaos, but it's just, you know, it's fascinating that that kind of a thing can happen, even in the 2000s. Yeah, that's amazing. That's not something that I ever would have thought of. Um, and even after reading the book, right, I was like, okay, well, this was something that was, you know, almost 100 years ago or so, but mm -hmm. this is pretty recent. That's very cool. Yeah. But yeah, so I uh, kind of very topical with talking about Google Maps and everything. So I did enjoy the theme and the cartographers, how, you know, tech and big money can be at odds with the magic of the everyday. Um, and I guess in the cartographers, that kind of relates towards specifically the maps. So were there any real world parallels you were trying to make there? Um, Google Maps kind of maybe <laughs> jumps to mind as the obvious one. Yeah. And I don't want to hate on Google Maps or anything. I'm, I use it every day and it's so yeah. valuable. You know, I it makes driving so much easier, so much safer because I'm not, you know, try, having to look down at a paper map and then also navigate at the same time on a freeway. So uh, I do think that they're really useful and they have improved our lives in countless ways. But I, the ways that we use a paper map compared to the ways that we use a digital map are really different. And we don't often think about it, but if you recall, the way that you used to use a paper map was you would look at it, you'd refer to it, and then you'd look back up and survey your surroundings and kind of triangulate yourself and then go a little bit further and then check the map again for reference and then look at the world around you. And so you had a much more interactive experience, I think, with the world and the map. Whereas if you watch someone these days navigate with Google Maps, especially if they're walking, they just stare at their phone the entire time. And then when they arrive at their destination, then they look up for the first time to see where the heck they are, you know, like they, yeah. um, and they saw nothing along the way. And if they had taken a wrong turn, they wouldn't even know until they got to the place and saw that the thing didn't exist anymore because they were so glued to the map and so trusting of it. And I hope that the cartographers brings back a little bit that feeling of curiosity and wonder that we used to have when we looked at paper maps compared to when we look at digital maps now. And they both, you know, the, the level of detail and accuracy that you can get with a digital map is not something you can ever get with a paper one. So they both have their place and they both are really important, but sure. we have lost that sense of wonder a little bit. And I think it would be, it would just be nice if we could get it back again. Uh, beautifully said. And I know, so my experience with maybe a benefit of a paper map that electronic doesn't have is I've been out of my office at work for so long with the pandemic that construction has happened around the location <laughs> and now like actual exits have changed off of roads and you know <laughs> it doesn't look the same anymore but my map yeah. had not updated to show that so i went into the office for the first time after a year and a half or so and i was lost <laughs> following google maps <laughs> because it just kept taking me around in circles right around where i needed to be yeah. Um, so yeah i guess that also shows how reliant we can be or at least i can be on the electronic versions of maps mm -hmm. yeah so you mentioned earlier about kind of how you structure a story depends on what you center and what you value the most. I think maybe uh, I might be onto something with saying that you center characters first and foremost, given that there is such a deep journey, I feel like, with the cartographers themselves and uh, Nell as well. So how do you approach writing a story that values characters so deeply, sometimes uh, potentially even over plot? 
You know, I, it was a process of discovery for me too, because when I started the, uh, the cartographers, I did not know myself that it was going to be story centered around characters. I thought, because it is a mystery, it, it seems like the plot would be the most important thing. And, uh, and I mean, character and plot are inextricably linked. You can't really have only one. You've, you've got to have, yeah. you know, even if you have the most interesting story, you still got to have really compelling, sympathetic people in it. Or even if you've got an idea of a person that everybody would just love to read, you've still got to give them cool things to do. So <laughs> they're, they are related. But when I started writing the, car, the cartographers, I really thought that plot was going to be the main focus because it is, uh, it is a mystery and it is kind of a thriller or a suspense novel. And I actually spent, I think at least a year trying to come at the book from that angle and it just wasn't working for some reason. And I, I couldn't figure out what it was. And eventually what I realized was it was because I was valuing the plot over the people and you know, because as, as interesting as a map is, a map can't be a character. People can be characters. And so it was the, how the map was going to affect the people that was making the story really powerful. And so until it wasn't until I shifted my focus from thinking about the map being the most important thing to how the map is affecting these people and their lives as the most important thing that I really started to, I think, get a grip on what the real story was. Yeah. And I think you mentioned with publishing, it's kind of hard to know timelines and schedules for when you were writing this versus when it was released. Um, but I think you mentioned that you scrapped like almost a whole book's worth or so of content from that and started over. Is that what happened with the cryptographers or was that a different book? Uh, no, it happened. Well, it also did happen with the book of M actually. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. It happened. <laughs> it definitely happened with the cryptographers. I have exactly the same amount of pages out of the book that I've thrown away that I have in the book that are that have made it into the book. So Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, so the book is I don't know, 400 something pages and I also have 400 something complete pages of story that no longer exists in there. So I did a lot of uh I did a lot of writing and a lot of rewriting and we actually did end up pushing the book a year. It was supposed to come out this time last year, but it wasn't until we were very close to the deadline actually. And I did have a finished book and I was on a call with my editor, my UK and my US editor. And we were talking about it because it was okay. Like the book was okay, but we could all tell that something was missing and we just, but we weren't sure what it was because you know, it's, it, it's, it was, it's so hard to explain. It was during this phase where we were all valuing plot over character, but we, we were on this call trying to decide if we should go with what we had or we should, you know, if we could fix it one more time. And then later that day I had the realization and I called them back and I said, okay, I know how to fix it. And we'd already, I'd already been working on it for two years at this point. So I said, I know how to fix it, but it's going to involve rewriting over half the book again. Uh, and, and I'm going to need, you know, some time. So we did, we pushed the book and, uh, I did rewrite at least half of it at that point. So that was another, I don't know, 200 pages onto the, onto the pile. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, that's tough too, I would imagine, because as a writer, even if we never see those two or 400 pages that you threw out, like that's still up in your head somewhere. So how do you keep that 
not book book separate in your mind from what's actually on the pages? You know, when you end up throwing it away, so there's two ways that you can throw something away. Sometimes you're throwing something away because it doesn't work, but you don't have anything to replace it with yet. And that is very hard because all you're seeing is your page count and your word count go way down. And you feel like you've destroyed your book, you know, cut out some vital organs from it, but you have nothing to replace it with. And it's just going to lay there bleeding on the table and you know, you're like, can I, can I fix this? Will it, will it survive? And then the other way is when you're cutting stuff because you know what to replace it with and you know how to fix it. And in that case, which was what happened to me the final time, you're just so relieved and excited that as soon as the cut pages are gone, they're just totally gone out of your head because you know what you finally know what you're doing and you can see the way forward. Okay. Yeah. That's great. Yes. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I mean, it's not, it is not always that way. Sometimes you're cutting in the first way and that's really tough, but when you're cutting in the second way, it's really exciting. Yeah. Well, okay. So I guess on that note as well, how, when you're swapping everything around like that and you had such major rewrites, so how do you still keep the effective like tension, the thriller element, the mystery together? Especially when, like you were saying, with a mystery, you would think maybe it might be more plotty than charactery, um, if those terms really mean anything. <laughs> it feels to me like an instinct thing. And I think it's one of those things that you end up doing in revision because, the, as the famous saying goes, when you're writing your first draft, you're telling yourself the story. And when you're writing the second draft, you're telling your readers the story. And so you, you know, you're figuring out what you have explained too much and don't need to give away or what you haven't explained enough and need to do more. And so when you are taking out a chunk, like half of your book and then putting in a new half, I think for me anyway, it's too hard to do both of those things at once to rewrite the new half and then also make it work seamlessly the first way through. So I just focus on getting the new half in there and then I go back through and reread it and see uh, you know, what, what I need to tighten up, what isn't clear yet, what, what needs to line up. And, uh, so it's really, it's layers and layers and layers. Yeah, no, I love that. That's how my brain works too. I would have mm-hmm. a hard time trying to go through one pass and you're like, all right, there's 27 things I need to focus on this time. <laughs> right. Oh, Cause yeah. everything's getting just like a little small fraction of my focus compared to what it could. Yeah, definitely. So is there anything you had to cut from the cartographers that you wish you could have left in? Anything I was like, oh, I guess that kind of gets into maybe kill your darlings a little. Yeah. Well, all of my darlings are other maps. I had so many maps. <laughs> yeah. I had, uh, I think, maybe 10 maps in the book. Wow. At one point. Okay. Yeah. My editor was like, okay, amazing, but also may- maybe too many. <laughs> so, but they were just so fun. And uh you know, who doesn't want to look at maps. So we, we cut it down a little bit to the most important ones. And there were, you know, at, at some point it was clear to me too, that I was just putting in lots of maps that almost didn't have anything to do with the story. Cause I was just really excited about maps. So maybe we can have some kind of a, I don't know, bonus material pack with the extra maps in it or something. Oh, that'd be very cool. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I'm normally not like a reader who like really ooze and awes over maps and books, mm-hmm. but like now I feel like I'm going to ooze and awe over regular maps because you <laughs> give me so much to think about. Oh, good. I'm glad. So I guess as someone who has, I guess so far, mostly written standalone stories across, you know, kind of a range of subgenres, what do you hope your brand is as a writer? Like, what do you hope a reader will expect when they pick up a new Pung Shepherd book? That's a great question. I think 
not to put you on the spot or anything. No, no, no. I was just thinking, so I was actually, a couple months ago, I was having a call with my editor about this next idea that, that I might be having. And we were, we, well, we were tossing around two different ideas that I, I had two ideas and I wasn't sure which one I wanted to go for. And she said, you know, th this one, you know, one of the two feels a lot like you. It's like the real world, but off by 12 degrees or something. Sure. And I thought, yeah, like may maybe that, that sounds, um, cause that is what I'm interested in. I, I do like setting things kind of in our real world, but just tilting everything a little bit to the left or, you know, adding, adding just one weird thing in and then seeing what happens. So I think she, I think that was a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. No, I like that. Um, and I think that was especially obvious for me with the cartographers, uh, now that you phrased it that way, given that I feel like with your basic story concept that you have, not to get into too many spoilers, mm -hmm. you could have gone way, way differently in a different direction, right? Yeah. Like very high fantasy, portal fantasy, something like that. Um, but you took it in a very more grounded direction. Yeah, I was, uh, actually that was another thing that got cut some, some couple hundred <laughs> pages also was a more high fantasy version with a secret society. And there were a, a bunch more, um, places not to spoil anything, but places like a particular place that's in the book, there were more places like that. And there was, there was this secret society that was at war with another secret society. And that was one of the versions where when I gave it to my editor, we, we talked about how it didn't quite feel like a punk shepherd book. It was, you know, like maybe, maybe it was good, but it didn't feel like that grounded in reality, but tilted 12 degrees off or something like that. Right. Yeah, no, I like that. That should be like kind of a, a title on your website or something like Punk Shepherd, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tilted 12 Degrees. <laughs> so you said before, and I really like this, that speculative fiction can get to the heart of the human condition more effectively sometimes than realistic fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, care to elaborate on that anymore? Well, to me, it when you're writing something that is only realistic, you have to consider a lot of things that you don't when you're working with speculative fiction. So if you're, it's almost like you're more bound by mm -hmm. reality because everything needs to remain kind of realistic. And so your characters can't react maybe as directly or as dramatically or as truthfully almost because we are, we are really, you know, everyone, everything is safer in, in, totally realistic contemporary fiction. But if you do something like everybody loses their shadows or there are dragons or there's a whole, I don't know, island that nobody knew about or the world stops spinning or the sun explodes because you've just broken all the rules of reality, your characters can just react to it in a way that even though the thing that has happened isn't realistic, the way that they react to it can sometimes feel more true because they are just going to react to it as authentically and truthfully as they can, because they don't have to be bound by all of our, you know, conventions and culture and, and, and typical things like that. Right. And I guess kind of continue on a theme that we've been talking about so far, you're making up fantasy or speculative things and plot, not characters in that sense, right? Where it's still yes. like a realistic human reaction to an unrealistic, fantastical thing. Yes. Yeah. Because I think we all read speculative fiction. We do read it for the really fantastical or science fictional premises and plots. And 
that's all wonderful and fascinating. And I, I love to be there too, exploring these new worlds and, and just learning new stuff, but you want the people in them to feel like you because you want to be able to identify with them and relate to them and follow their journeys. So you want as, as fantastical as the world can be, you want the people to feel as real and believable as possible. Yeah, there's also, I think I've heard it before as well with like the speculative element, it kind of helps make the implicit explicit where you take like something yeah. that could only be shown through like, I don't know, recurring themes or motifs in the book or something. But now you're like, okay, no, there's like an actual dragon and it symbolizes this. Not that like that's thrown at you and immediately explained, but like you can kind of get that extra element with it. Yeah, exactly. That's a very good way to put it. Um, not my words. I wish I could take credit for that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so one thing I also like to ask people is, are there any books you could recommend? Uh, it doesn't have to be ones you're reading currently or have read recently. And uh, since I know you're an author who gets blurb copies, it doesn't even have to be released yet. Okay. Uh, well, let's see. What have I just read? Well, one, so I can recommend one. It came out during the pandemic, actually. It's called Meet Me in Another Life or Meet Me in Another Lifetime. And it's by Catriona Sylvie. And I did read an advanced copy of that at the time. And it was... Uh, one of, I think it was the first book that I read during the pandemic where I actually could read it, where I got lost in it. And I was, you know, turning, just turning the pages and forgot the time instead of reading five pages and being like, Oh, I can't do this. I just can't focus. Even if this book is so good, I just can't do this. But I sat down with it and I fully expected to only get a couple pages in and then set it down and be really upset. Uh, about not being able to read. But instead, I read a couple pages and then I looked up and it was four hours later and I was 300 pages into the book and it was so good. So oh, I was the best feeling. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it was so great after so long too, because it had been, you know, months that I hadn't been able to read anything really. So I highly recommend that one. It's fantastic. I've also read, uh, if anyone is into series, I recently got, um, I can see you have it on your bookshelf too. I think it's the fall of Babel by oh, Josiah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that's the the books of Babel. Love that series. So great. So great. Uh, so I highly recommend that one. I've also gotten, uh, the final book in the Greenbone saga by, uh, okay, that's somewhere on my shelf. I think it's somewhere. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> yeah. if it's here for me, but, uh, but I have that, that one's fan. That's a, a wonderful series. What else? I think is uh, the second book in Rebecca Runhorse's trilogy, the Black Sun trilogy. I blurred her first book and I know that the second one is either coming out or just came out. As of this moment, I don't think it's out yet. So, oh, so I, as a blogger okay. who gets advanced review copies, I am also terrible at knowing the exact yeah, when, when, when they're out, release. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, that one should also be on the list uh, when, okay. when it is out. Uh, those are, yeah, I, I think those are my some of my top recommendations right now. Great. Yeah, I love that. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm admiring your bookshelf in the background too for anyone who can see the video. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you've definitely got some books on there that I've read and enjoyed as well that are probably mm -hmm. on my shelf behind me too. I think so, yeah. Yeah, and I love that there's, speaking of that uh, Josiah Bancroft, I love that there's two <laughs> copies of The Fall of Babel back there. <laughs> oh, this, I think this is the Hod King and then... Oh, is it? Okay, they look so well, similar on the spine. <laughs> I know they do. One of them, so one of the, I think this one up here is my mom's copy. Um, okay. So yeah, so possibly there, there could be multiple Josiah Bancroft books in, in gotcha. this I was going to say that that would be very near and dear to my heart. Cause I think yeah. I have like four or five versions of each of those books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, well, yeah. Okay. So looking forward, what's next mm -hmm. for you? Any future projects that you can talk about? Anything you're working on at the moment? 
Yeah, I am actually halfway through the first draft of my third novel. I don't know if I can say anything about it yet, but it is okay. going well. It's about halfway done. We'll see how many hundreds of pages of that one I have <laughs> yeah, to throw you go halfway out. done for the first iteration. <laughs> yep, yep, exactly. So uh, that's, uh, but it's it's going very well, and I'm very excited. Perfect. And so that's another one of your signature twelve degrees to the left. Mm-hmm. Yep. Perfect. Well, looking forward to that. Um, <laughs> and then also, I always like to ask people to close out these interviews. Just what's one thing that you're excited about right now? Can be anything. Doesn't have to be writing oh, related, okay. but it can be. Well, I, in about a month or two, I'm actually moving to Mexico City for a few years. So I'm oh, super wow. excited okay. about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very I can't cool. wait. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, that's, that's a big thing. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, so, yeah, it's yeah. very big. Very exciting. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, well, this has been an absolute delight, Pung. Uh, thank you so much for stopping by the Fantasy Inn. Yeah, thank you for having me. I had so much fun. You can find Pung Shepherd on Twitter as Pung Shepherd or at her website, PungShepherd.com. Maps and magic and mystery. Oh my, the Cartographers has it all. As always, you can find us over at TheFantasyInn.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, consider leaving us a review online. There's links in the show notes to where you can leave your thoughts, and a minute of your time makes a world of difference. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.